My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Eumenidites, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater bringing you another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Now, I want to get right into today's episode, but before I do, I feel I should offer a bit of a disclaimer. Today, we are going to be discussing the King Kong musical that appeared on Broadway, but before I do, I have to address, pardon the pun, the one-ton gorilla in the room. Upon researching the episode, it became quite clear to me, even though I'd heard it before and tried to dismiss it, that Marion C. Cooper, the director of the original 1933 film, was really making a story not so much about an incredible ape, but King Kong can be seen as an allegory promoting his very racist ideas against African Americans. Plus, do we really need to address the phallic symbology of King Kong's ascent of the Empire State Building? No, I think not. But despite all that, there's something about this story that seems to transcend all that ugliness. I have loved the 1933 film since I first saw it, and I saw it in preparation to see Peter Jackson's remake in 2005. It was the perspective of the latter that made me fall in love with the King Kong story, since, from my perspective, it wasn't a story about racial superiority. It was a story about the pursuit of beauty, or at least the respect for it. And by beauty, I mean the fuel that drives our passions and how that can transcend a lot of things, even species. Okay, enough with disclaimers. Let's just get right to the episode. For this episode, I bring back David Britton, who last appeared in episode 16, The Stunts of David Merrick. David was a student of mine for many years and has since become a valued colleague and a fearless performer, so it was my pleasure to resume the roles of student and teacher and extol upon him the truly fascinating story of today's episode, King Kong the Musical. Oh, David. Oh, my gosh. Um, This year's Rocky Horror, huh? Yeah. Like, it was, I mean... Yeah. It was good, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I'm still getting over the fact, and I mentioned it on the last show, that uh, the audience was the loudest we've ever had, I would say, mm -hmm. and the least interactive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. When I went out there for Eddie, I had a pump them up. No cards were thrown. No toilet paper thrown. People did get the, the newspapers. 
but they just wanted to scream at the stage. That's <laughs> all they wanted to do. <laughs> hey, easy cleanup for us, right? Hey, I didn't mind that. I didn't mind that at all. But you got some fun special effects this year playing Eddie, though. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was that was fun. <laughs> Feel free to describe that for our listening audience. <laughs> it was it, it was donated by uh, JJ. Who oh, JJ Rain. Local, yep. Yeah, who's like a local director here in town. A filmmaker, yeah. And he made it special effects and all that. And he, it's like this, I don't even know how to describe it. Like this fake chest skeleton thing. And he gored it up and had like socks and like stuff all like glued up and made like chest irons. <laughs> yeah, it was and like then, just the full rib cage just exposed, yeah. right? Yeah. And then uh, we had some special effects with the scar and stuff for Eddie's scar. Oh, yeah, that was a good scar this year. Yeah. yeah. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so when we uh, dragged you out as Eddie under the uh, dining room table, <laughs> people might find this a little lazy, uh, but at the same time, our audience just loved it. Oh, God. We paraded David out behind a tablecloth so people couldn't air quotes see him. He <laughs> laid down on the table with all the guts hanging out, and then we put the tablecloth on top of him and proceeded to have dinner on top of that. <laughs> Yeah, my hand was hanging out. It was great. My hand was hanging out the whole time. <laughs> and at the correct moment, ba 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 reveal. Oh my god, he's dead. And people lost their freaking mind. <laughs> it's pretty great. I, I heard tons of feedback saying how funny that was. Oh, that was so funny. That was so mm-hmm. funny. I'm glad we came up with that. But um but David, that is uh, actually kind of leading into the topic uh, that I'm going to be talking about today. And uh, so, uh, you know, I brought you here for a reason. Are you ready to get into this? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, my gosh. Well, I sent you the question earlier this week, and I hope you've had some time to think about it. But um, here it goes. Adapting popular movies into musicals has been all the rage for a number of years. But not all movies could be or should be adapted into musicals. Why do you think that is? My first thought, for some reason, I was like, <laughs> yeah, like, you can't convert Rambo or Transformers into a musical. Oh, my God. You gotta become war. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first thought. And then I realized that the movies that do get adapted in musicals, they already have a little bit of singing in it already Mm, so mm -hmm. i think a lot of those kind of work but some of them just like you know like rambo yeah i don't know if that can work (laughs) and speaking of that too like there have been attempts at sequels in musicals Mm -hmm. in the past Mm -hmm. like very infamously the two i can think of right away are love never dies the sequel to phantom of the opera which people went we finished this story, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the sequel, absolutely no one asked for, Grease 2. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it has its quirks, but yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, okay, so so it shows like Rambo that uh, what would make that impossible to put on stage? I, I mean, again, I was thinking like cost and special effects and all that stuff. Okay. Like okay. for Rambo and for like especially like high action, and not to like just focus on high action movies, a lot of the stuff comes from uh special effects. 
Yeah, yeah. And like, don't get me wrong, you can do loads of special effects on stage. Right. But some of them just like probably not practical or safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then there are those times where it's like Rambo shoots an arrow and it tinks off of a fuel can and it explodes mm. a village. Right. And you're like, uh, okay, that might have been a little more than what might really have happened, but uh, okay, benefit of the doubt, I guess, you know. Um, so I don't know, you, you know, uh, uh, listeners of the show who have been with us for a long time uh, might remember episode four, the uh, era of isms. And one of those eras, or maybe two of those eras, were realism and naturalism. And when we're speaking of, you know, the stuff that you were talking about, David, the stuff you have to design, the stuff you have to create to give the illusion of what's going on. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, the eras of realism and naturalism were like, look, we have to make things as true to life as possible to understand the fragility of the human condition or the actual truth of the human condition. Therefore, here's a quote I found that I think you like. Audiences came to see shows in the 19th century simply because the sets had doors and windows that opened and closed. When it became possible to cook an actual meal on stage, audiences came to see that as well. Oh, man. <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> now, in your previous appearance on the show, we talked about uh, your affinity towards professional wrestling mm -hmm. and how we know, like, there's, there's a thing now where they finally leaned into the fact that, look, we know it's not entirely real, but yeah, people are getting hit over the head with aluminum mm -hmm. chairs. It's actually mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. But we also know that there's a way it's choreographed and that like not every time somebody's hit, they get a concussion. Right. Right. <laughs> but I, I love that idea that people came to the theater and they're like, God damn it. They're frying an egg up there. <laughs> That's just like we do at home. Doors. doors open. Oh my gosh. They're not just painted on. Uh, now to contrast that, I would, Challenge my listeners to go back and listen to my recent episode, Is Cats Any Good? David's shaking his head, no. Uh, but we fully discuss the musical Cats, and at the end of it, we go, you know, it's a very simplistic story, but it's told with amazing spectacle that at the end of the night, you saw something huge and bombastic and everything, even though at the end of the story, the, the plot line is, an old cat dies. <laughs> but it's still it's, it's still a thing where you're like it's amazing to see might not be your cup of tea but you can't deny you saw something incredible and it has it's cult following so i'll give you another quote along with that this is from uh lawrence f maslin i hope i pronounce that right because i'd love for him to hear this sometime he's an arts professor at uh, new york university's graduate acting program oh, tish. okay yeah tish okay anyway here's the quote when there's a technological advance that can be incorporated on stage, the theater quickly harnesses it and exploits it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Grab it and squeeze every last drop out of it, right? I get every dime out of this. Everybody's got to see it at least once. So um, I want to talk about a time in which that happened. Are you ready for this? All right, let's see. Okay. Inspired by some of the realistic dinosaur effects created in 1993's Jurassic Park and the wave of CGI innovation that followed, 
a group of theater artists in Australia approached multimillionaire Jerry Ryan. That's G-E-R-R-Y. He had no past in the entertainment industry at all, but they approached him with a very wild idea. What if we could create an arena show where people could see dinosaur puppets so realistic that the audience might actually forget they were puppets? Okay, I'm down. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Are they going to eat anybody? Like, uh, you know, do we yeah. have to have special fences? <laughs> now, for whatever reason, Ryan was so taken with the idea that he footed most of the bill. But never having been involved in entertainment before, he was, yep, go for it. Where do I sign? The group hired veteran film puppet designer Sonny Tilders to head up the project. And Tilders has been around forever. I think I saw him, like, he created some puppets for, I want to say, Return of the Jedi. Yeah. He was really influential in that uh, TV show Farscape. Mm-hmm. I saw some great quote with him where he's like, it was really wild because like every like two or three episodes were like, okay, I guess we got to invent a new alien race and what they look like <laughs> because they had to interact in live environment. You know, they couldn't have CG or anything on uh, uh, at the time that show was filmed, but yeah. So Tilders was hired. He assembled his team. And in about 12 months, they had a platoon of 16 dinosaur puppets that did exactly what they were set out to do. Each puppet's exterior was designed with utmost detail and the mechanisms for maneuvering each puppet were mostly masked from the audience including any puppeteers inside tilder's dream of bringing film animatronics to a live format had come true the show was loosely based on the very popular bbc series walking with dinosaurs that's what the show took its name from okay so you you remember when walking with dinosaurs was all over and going everywhere yeah i remember okay that That came out of australia So the show was designed to be an arena tour so fans could sit anywhere and get a full view of up to 16 life-size dinosaurs. I think Mm -hmm. they even had like a T-Rex and a a, a Brachiosaurus, which is kind of cool. And the Brachiosaurus, I don't think it was life-size because those things are like uh, several stories tall. (laughs) Yeah. But the show went on to sell out arenas around the world for the next decade. Wow often in higher numbers than other rock tours at that time, headlined by the likes of U2 and Madonna. They outsold U2 and Madonna in certain places. Holy cow. Jerry Ryan, impressed with the success of the show, partnered with Sonny Tilders to create the Creature Technology Company. Their specialty became photorealistic, life-size puppets in amusement park attractions and further arena shows. They followed up Walking with Dinosaurs with the How to Train Your Dragon arena tour. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Their projects are still on display at Universal Studios parks around the world. But the growth of this company was beyond what Jerry Ryan was interested in overseeing. So... He made a pitch to fellow Aussie Carmen Pavlovich, who had worked for Andrew Lloyd Webber's company, The Really Useful Group, which specifically licenses and produces only his shows around the world. She was willing to run the company for him, but on the condition that arena shows with big scaly creatures weren't going to be the specific focus of the new company. She wanted it to include traditional theater as well. Ryan agreed? Like he did the last time. <laughs> well, sure, why not? Yeah. 
and the new company, Global Creatures, was formed. And for their first musical, David, Pavlovich more or less demanded, knowing the prowess of the company she just had assumed leadership over, that the musical would be based off of her brother's favorite movie, King Kong. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my God. So I'm just going to say it up front. Uh, do you see any red flags here? Any problems? Uh, a few, a few. <laughs> Such as? Like what? Come on. Stick in the mud. You know, the big obvious gorilla. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, here's a quote from Sonny Tilders exactly on that. We chose it without knowing just how complex it was going to be. It seemed in my mind quite easy. It's just a puppet. It'll all work. <laughs> okay, here's a, here's a continuation of the quote. But there was the realization that it was more than just a puppet for me, more than just another creature. There's a whole story connected to it. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> In fact, speaking of stories, let's discuss that story right now and see if we can find any problem elements when you're talking about adapting something to the stage. Here are the highlights of the story of the original 1933 King Kong movie. Ambitious filmmaker Carl Denham has chartered a ship to an uncharted territory, Skull Island, to be the next exotic location of his next film. Skull Island is supposed to be home to a legend known as Kong, who no one in recorded civilization has ever seen before, and Denim hopes to be the first to capture whatever Kong is on film. However, for his film, he doesn't have a leading lady, but he convinces a total stranger, Anne Darrow, to accompany them on the voyage. And while on board, Anne falls in love with the ship's first mate, Jack Driscoll. Mm -hmm. Because in the 1930s, that's what women do. They fall in love. Now, when the crew finally reaches Skull Island, they see a giant wall which encircles the interior of the island. And once they land, they come upon a native village where the villagers are preparing a, a woman for sacrifice to Kong. Upon seeing Anne, they beg and plead for, quote, the golden woman as Anne has blonde hair mm-hmm. <laughs> and is thus obviously a better sacrifice. Mm-hmm. They are denied and the visitors return to the ship. But later that night, the villagers sneak onto the ship and kidnap Anne. She is prepared for the sacrifice and is stolen by Kong, a 20 foot tall gorilla who happily accepts the offering. Denim and Driscoll and a few other crew members go onto the island and pass the wall in hopes of retrieving Anne. And for most of the rest of the time on Skull Island, and I'm not actually watering this down too much, Anne is protected by Kong from various dinosaurs, most of which Kong is able to kill, including that that great scene where he fights a T-Rex. There's another one where like the the sea dinosaur jumps up and gets him. Oh, it's really fun. Anyway, and Mm -hmm. and it's all stop motion animation, but it's it's really revolutionary stop-motion animation, so it still, like, captures you. And Denim and Driscoll and the others also have conflicts with other prehistoric creatures. Driscoll is finally able to connect with Anne, and they are able to escape with Denim and the others. Kong pursues, and as he meets them at the shore, Denim is able to subdue the beast with a gas bomb, rendering it unconscious. Kong is then shackled and hauled aboard, where he will be put on display... In New York City, <laughs> Kong is billed as 
Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, and is chained in a Broadway theater and is displayed in front of a sold-out crowd. But once the photographers start taking pictures, the camera's flashes startle Kong, who breaks loose and goes on a rampage through the streets of New York. Kong is able to find Anne in a hotel room in a high-rise, and he absconds with her with the military close behind. In an attempt to get away from the gun blasts, Kong scales the Empire State Building with Anne, only to be taken down in that great scene with biplanes and gunfire and everything. Right, right. Completely subdued by bullets, Kong is able to give one last look at Anne before he dies and falls to the streets below. And this is where Carl Denham gives a classic line. A policeman remarks that it must have been the planes that got the beast. Denham replies, it wasn't the planes. It was beauty killed the beast. Mm -hmm. Credits roll and you're like, oh, wow. Even thinking back to that in a 1939 version, it's just, or 1933, just like, ooh, God, that's that's incredible. So, yeah, you see any problems with that uh, on the stage? Yeah, a few. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I can't imagine what, but you know. yeah, I mean, a T Rex our... fight. Well, they already have one. Yeah, they have one. <laughs> it could could it be doable? Yes, hmm. but man, there's some like the Empire State scene that like sticks out in my head. As, ah, like, how, yeah. how can they actually do it? You know, how can they scale it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, how can they scale it? How can they do the biplanes? Mm-hmm. It was something. Let me tell you, because I saw the version on Broadway in 2019. And mm-hmm. it, it, if you didn't know the story, you'd probably be like, what's the big deal? He's standing on a dome that I we're led to believe is the top of the Empire State Building. Everybody okay? Everybody okay? And then you hear this and a plane goes, like a plane sound goes from house left to house right and you're like, oh, here it comes. And you hear gunfire and lights go off and everything. You're like, huh. And yeah, when he dies, I still got a little tear in my eye. I was like, no. No, my Kong. I mean, I mean that and like just like the whole pursuit through New York. Like those. Like how do you do that on a stage? Um, I saw a touring company version of the musical Titanic, which is very different than the movie, even though it's about the same event. Mm-hmm. And they do some really cool, subtle tricks in that to make like, I remember one scene uh, takes place in like the telegraph office or something like that. And the ship is already sinking. So it's slanting a bit. So mm-hmm. what they did was they just had this very small little set that just had a desk and a chair and two guys talking. And they're like, they just kept talking about how important it was to get people here and save these people. And by the end of the scene, the chair started rolling down indicating that the ship was sinking deeper and deeper and that the, 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 the front of the ship was getting higher and higher. Um, and so it was just that little tiny illusion. That's cool though. Right. I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's really neat. At the end mm-hmm. of the first act, the curtain more or less closed, but then they had this illusion. It was as though you were looking at the Titanic sailing across the water from several hundred yards away in your own boat and you just see the ship kind of glide across the water and basically it was like they probably had some little facade that looked like 
waves in the water and a lit ship that was more or less on a stick that somebody just dragged from one side of the stage to the other. <laughs> Most of the audience went, woo, including me. And a guy sitting next to me was like, ah, bullshit. <laughs> oh, yes, we know that's not a ship going across the water. It did enhance the story for us, though. Sorry you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> There's always that one guy. <laughs> uh, the shark's still fake. Anyway. <laughs> so regarding that story, I think it did actually help that Global Creatures used the original 1932 novella as source material. Because this is what original director Marion C. Cooper had asked a friend to write so he could then adapt that novelization into a movie. Since apparently he couldn't come up with the idea himself. <laughs> I mean, he had the idea. He just asked somebody else to write the idea, and the guy fleshed it out really, really well. Right. Now, this version didn't have most of the dinosaurs that the film had, so they were able to focus more specifically on Kong and not so much on most of the other creatures on Skull Island. In fact, in the in the broad, I think in the Melbourne and the Broadway one, he fought this giant snake, which was like a sea serpent, mm -hmm. and then eventually like crushed its skull. And it was, right. but yeah, um, you know, there. Uh, I'll, I'll get into it later. But it, it was kind of, in 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 my experience, a little anticlimactic. But you also have to remember, by then, we'd had another version of Kong that was in the zeitgeist. In two thousand five, Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson used the success of that franchise to convince Universal Studios to allow him to remake one of his favorite movies one and inspired him to become a filmmaker king kong mm -hmm. and in classic peter jackson form he turned kong into a three-hour epic fully rife with stunning cgi imagery for the time yeah yeah oh my god well sonny tilders of global creatures wanted to do better than that with the puppet in the Kong musical. Okay. <laughs> Childers actually considers CGI, quote, the enemy of his art. And it's what made him leave the film industry in the early 90s. Oh, like he was so he was so invested in the idea of practical effects because mm -hmm in the 80s somebody would come up to them and go okay we got to have this creature and it's got to have eyeballs that can rock it out and then suck back in or you know it's got to have um ears that are on the back of its head and then they can develop into wings or something like that okay go create and so right. it it inspired this um era of creation and mm -hmm. like they had to do it so yeah for tilders to have steven spielberg come out and go let's make these dinosaurs computer generated and you know it was a great mixture of cgi and animatronic but he went ah that's cheap that's a cheap way of going out yeah builders actually challenged himself to make a kong more realistic than the kong in peter jackson's 2005 film which won the oscar for best achievement in visual effects that year and originally tilders also wanted his kong to be entirely animatronic Beat Peter Jackson's Kong on stage with your puppet. Go for it. Oh, God. That's a, that's a hard task. That's ambition for you, man. You get, yeah. you go now, get it. 
is this the this is the one where Jack Black was the director, right? Or like yeah, in the in the two thousand yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Just making sure I got that one. Oh yeah, and he was so like amazing casting because like up to then we'd known jack black as kind of a goofy guy and everything and here's this guy who's like speaking of ambition like Mm -hmm. i loved that movie oh i'll cry at that movie every time and this is why i still have the king kong t-shirt why i have the plushie i have the cup upstairs i wear the hoodie i still have the playbill framed on my wall because i just love the king kong story i love Mm -hmm. the king kong mythos anyway uh (laughs) Daniel Kramer, who directed the original musical version in Kong on Broadway, was none too impressed with Tinder's original vision for King Kong and went on record to say, and I quote, the theater is not the place for realism. Man. (laughs) Man. Uh, So you take take umbrage with that quote. When, when When I go to the theater, I expect to feel something. Regardless of it's 100% believable or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I expect, I, I just, I, I guess I kind of expect it to make me believe what I'm seeing on the stage. Mm. So whether it's a door opening or window closing or Friday. <laughs> I mean, one that I remember I, in high school, I don't know if I remember, if you remember me telling mm. you the story, they were doing, um, oh, what's that show? Oh, it's about the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, the Crucible. Yeah, the Crucible. They were doing the Crucible, and I, it was this random high school in um, Colorado. And for the little yellow bird scene, they actually had like a yellow laser bird like fly across the the stage. Oh, okay. Like, so it was it was a projection or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was a projection, and it was kind of like a sort of a real realism as like okay there's a bird even though it's not supposed to be it, it was weird anyways <laughs> well yeah i mean how do you train a bird once like you have that problem anytime you bring a dog on stage you know in rehearsal the dog might be fine but then it gets in front of 500 people laughing and giggling at it it's like i think i'll take a shit right now yeah and, and i just that that kind of made me <laughs> kind of made me mad because you you expect to go feel something whether it's just as simple as opening a door you know yeah you yeah. need that such a realism. And for him to say that, it's like, no, it does go on in stage. So you're so your audience is entranced or in the in the moment or something. <laughs> well, to a degree, I see where he's coming from because he's like, Look, we're making King Kong on stage. True. We have to be able to pull people's legs a little bit here, don't we? On the True. other hand, there is the concept of the willing suspension of disbelief. If you can make these couple hours that uh, people are watching something, if you can make the the reality of what they're seeing real to them for just that moment, Mm -hmm. then you're doing it right. Right. Realism is not, well, we better uh, start uh, hyper breeding gorillas and uh, (laughs) making sure that we have growth hormones in each generation and that they reproduce quickly. So within seven or eight generations, we're going to have the monkey we can train. And Mm -hmm. no, we're not asking for that. It's it's a very mm, it's a a very Mm -hmm. double faced response to that. Anyway. Yeah. However, uh, I, I do like where Kramer came from after this, though. He suggested that the team lean into an old Japanese style of puppetry called Bunraku. Have you ever heard of that? No, I don't think I have. Okay, so Bunraku, like the puppets can be even sometimes four and five feet tall, 
But there is like an entire team of puppeteers behind them. And usually they're dressed all in black and they have like a special screen. So you can't see their face, but the, but the puppeteers can see what they're doing. So it's like, you totally ignore that the puppeteers are there. You just fully envelop yourself in the fact that these movements of the puppets are real. Like in one video I was watching just to get ready for this episode, there's like a samurai puppet who like could really quickly go to the sheath on its hip and pull out the sword and wield it. And, and it was cool. just like, yeah, you know, it was just like three or four puppeteers all in sync doing the movements to make sure that this one character was doing the movements they wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what Kramer said. He says, let's, let's lean into Boone or Koo and try that. So the puppeteers would be seen on stage. This almost ended the project because Tilders had basically made his name with walking with dinosaurs and mm-hmm. being able to almost completely hide the puppeteers and the mechanisms that made them come to life. But in the end, Kramer was able to convince him, hey, no, let's let's try this. And a group of performers that would come to be known as the King's Men could be seen on stage with all black clothing, including black hoodies and gloves and mm-hmm. Harlequin masks like a superhero <laughs> would wear. Right, right. <laughs> I love that element to it. It's like it's like they're cartoon 30s robbers or something like that. <laughs> We're going full into this, this Kong musical. Can't you just cover their faces? I'm sure there's something we can do. Right. But the mask, Aaron, it works. It gets people into that 1930s feel, right? Yeah. So in the long run, the idea was that the artists were still storytellers. So the idea became more about not just the story that was being told, but also about who was telling the story, adding a very human spirit to it. And so it was kind of like in the vein of, hey, look what we can do. Isn't this cool? As humans, we invented this puppet that resembles a gorilla walking around on stage. We're all doing it together at the same time. You're just watching the gorilla. Some, and sometimes you might see the puppetry and go, oh, wow, that's cool. But you're still watching the gorilla. Mm-hmm. Right. The Kong puppet itself was around 20 feet tall when standing on its knuckles like a gorilla and even taller if it was standing up on its legs. The skeleton was constructed of hollow steel cylinders to make sure that the puppet weighed as little as possible, but would be strong enough to support the entire weight of the puppet. The basic framework of the torso and limbs were essentially just inflated airbags. So like the musculature or just, I mean, well, I mean, to flesh out, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, from the basic skeleton to, you know, but yeah, it was just airbags all of which managed to keep the weight even further down. So it wasn't, you know, stuffing or foam or anything like that. It was just air. The skin was a meticulously designed series of bags that would resemble the musculature of a gorilla and still have some movement. So each of these bags was filled with like a certain amount of light styrofoam balls, like, you know, uh, about the size of a pea. Mm-hmm. so that there would still be some movement in each section when the creature moved. So it looked like actual muscle moving around. Okay. I'm like, that was, that was a really clever addition to it. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and because of these styrofoam balls, one puppeteer referred to the Kong puppet as the world's largest beanie baby. Fair. Fair. <laughs> uh, incredibly valuable, right? Don't mm-hmm. take the tag off. Yeah, right. The head and face of Kong are controlled by two hydraulic cylinders, 
and 15 individual motors for just the movements of the face, like the raising of the eyebrows, the snarling of the lips, the, you know, eyes opening and closing, jaws opening, and even the lips could move individually and in different ways. Wow. And these these, uh, machines, these uh, motors, were the same type of motors that NASA uses to steer the Mars rover. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. So they needed you know, a little bit of complicated stuff, it would see. Yeah, yeah. Now, as far as Kong's movements across the stage, because you can't just have a puppet stand in one place on stage and make it realistic, right? Like, he's right. always in center stage. Nope. <laughs> Kong was suspended from a specialized gantry crane with a customized track in the ceiling. And this track was like on a rotating disc. Mm-hmm. Thus, Kong could actually be lifted and swung around the stage 180 degrees horizontally and moved basically anywhere on the stage that you could basically move the track in the ceiling. That's just crazy. <laughs> Something... what, what, what year was this? 2005? Um, this is, uh, we're getting to 2011. 2011, okay. 2011. Yeah. Um, I, I was it, like, man, back then, holy cow, but okay, 2011. Yeah. I'm going to come back to something about that with the rotation later when, when we get to the Broadway version. <laughs> But I still, that's amazing, the the tech that went into it. Right. Oh, check this out. Check this out. Sonny Tilders even included a mechanism that was inspired from the Kong model in the original movie, a breathing apparatus. Tilders didn't think it would be believed if the audience couldn't see it live. So essentially, they had an airbag that was in its chest, like right under its chest muscle, that would inflate and you could see it actually breathe. That's cool. I mean, right? yeah. we're really thinking of everything. Yeah, That's and crazy. I mean, and it's it's blinking and it's moving its head and it's listening and it's doing all this stuff to give you realistic idea that it's an actual living thing. Now, the one of the things that some people were like, well, that wasn't entirely what it was supposed to look like. It didn't have fur. It didn't have any hair on it. It was just kind of a. I think one. One thing I saw said it was basically a moving sculpture. Yeah. Now, in order to move the thing, ropes and pulleys were visible at all times. But in complete synchronicity, the 10 onstage puppeteers would be divided into teams. There would be a team for just wrists or just elbows or just knees, etc. When an arm needed to raise, a puppeteer could be seen scaling the back of the beast and then holding a rope, jumping from Kong's shoulder. As the puppeteer descended, Kong's arm would raise at the same time. The weight of the arm slowed the guy's fall enough so he wasn't just jumping from like 20 feet in the air and (laughs) falling on his ankles. Well, there goes Greg. We need another one. (laughs) (laughs) With the 10 damn puppeteers a week. They're made like glass, I tell you. (laughs) But I mean, can you just imagine the coordination of that? Like Kong has to go two or three steps forward. You have to have two people on right wrist, two people on left wrist. You have to have a couple people pulling uh, uh, weights to get the arms to move. I mean, yeah, I've I've seen videos of that puppet. And like I've seen them like jump from shoulder to, and it's just like breathtaking how synced everyone is. Oh, it's beautiful coordination. And there's always that thought of, man, if someone trips right now, it could be disaster. Yeah. <laughs> One step and Kong's flipping off the entire audience, right? <laughs> okay. 
Here are the final numbers for the crew for just the operation of the Kong puppet. And here's a quote. Bringing this 20-foot, 1.1-ton behemoth to life are 14 puppeteers and computer technicians, along with 16 microprocessors, 16,000 connections, and nearly 1,000 feet of electrical cable built into the beast. Wow. I mean, what's that go for on eBay? That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And that's just the one puppet. Now, filling in the background, like, David, it was so impressive to me. I'm going to, I'll just relay this in my personal experience of it. Okay. There were a couple set pieces. That's about it. They might have put in some drops and everything, but the whole environment was created with this big horseshoe shaped video screen in the back that had to be far enough away in the back that Kong could do all his movements on the stage and still be big enough that it would encapsulate everything so it was creating an atmosphere. Now, when I went and saw it, uh, I got to be in a talkback after the show. And of course, everybody wanted to talk about the technical aspects and everything. And they're like, oh, tell me about Kong. How big is he? What does he weigh? And me, I was, the, I was the absolute nerd and asked about the choreography because I was an idiot. But, but somebody asked, uh, tell me about the screen back there. David, essentially what this thing was was the same kind of technology that goes into jumbotrons in major sports arenas, like major HD stuff. I I, I can only imagine this is almost like the same kind of technology that went into the sphere in Vegas. Right. Okay. I mean, it's just creating photorealistic everything behind it. So it has infinite possibilities to it. And that's what created the environment. But this was so funny (laughs) to me. (laughs) There were scenes where Kong is like running through the jungle. So his fists are coming down and everything and his back feet are going up. And then there was one point where he had to do a jump and you're like, oh, he's jumping over like a big canyon or something. Mm -hmm. And it was like the Matrix bullet time. Kong's whole form, as though the camera was looking at him forward, Mm -hmm. went to his profile and then he continued to run after that. But it, 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 even the music, like the music was going at a regular pace and then it stopped. It went to like slow-mo, like, huh. and then Kong, Kong turned. And the person uh, who I was with, like we had seen four shows together that week. She sat there and went, whoa. And I went, can I tell you a secret? They just rotated him 45 degrees. That's all that actually just happened. Just <laughs> Yeah, but it's a big gorilla. <laughs> and then the lights behind it made it look like he stopped in time. <laughs> Still just 45 degree turn. Somebody yeah. pushed the button and it went. <laughs> okay. Now, when it got to Broadway, the stage of the Broadway theater had to be specially remodeled so that the back of the house was much deeper to accommodate for this jumbotron thing. They completely reconstructed that theater. I want to say, I think they even brought the proscenium wall out so that they can make the backstage even deeper. And of course, that the Broadway theater is no stranger to that. If any, It happened again this last year, if anybody wants to look it up, for the production of Here Lies Love, which just recently closed, in which they turned like, the stage into the floor of a disco, and you could buy standing seats there. Kind of cool. Okay, but come. 
come on, how can I talk about the King Kong musical and not spend more than half the episode talking about the creation of the puppet? I deplore you to Google it as soon as you can to see just how impressive it was. And while you're online, feel free to connect with the show on our Instagram pages for both Euripides, Humanities, and Trident Theater. You can also go to tridenttheater.com and drop us a line with the contact us section. But back to the episode. The puppet is really only half the story. They still have to develop a musical around it. So let's get back to David Britton and the rest of today's episode, King Kong the Musical. Okay, so here we are in 2010. I had said 2011 before, but it's 2010. Two years into development of the creation of the puppet. You know what they forgot to do for this play? Add music? <laughs> Write a script! <laughs> which, oh. includes, which includes adding music! Wow! <laughs> oh, God. Well, they I did mean, all that and didn't have a script. Yeah. Well, you know, they had the basic plot line. They're right. just going to use the, the movie. It's okay. Now, a script was basically somewhat hastily put together with some original songs, but a host of other existing songs from somewhat well-known pop artists, including at least one song by Sarah McLaughlin. And I really hope it wasn't the Humane Society. What? <laughs> that's that's the one that's popping in my head. <laughs> uh, that, how, what trickery is that? What I mean, oh, you know, you don't know if you love or hate Kong. You hear Sarah McLaughlin and Kong's on stage. You're like, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Oh, man. So, after three years of developments of a script, readings, stage readings, rewrites, auditions, and casting, King Kong premiered at the Regent Theater in Melbourne, June 15th, 2013. Now, when the original film King Kong premiered 80 years earlier in 1933, America was in the throes of the Great Depression. Right. King Kong and its eye-catching special effects more or less saved RKO pictures from going under. Wow. There was a pleasant sentiment in the film that people could forget about the reality of the horrid conditions of life around them and see amazing sights of the world, quote, for 10 cents a ticket. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. Like in a time when like people needed to escape from their reality more, they go and see this model of an ape fight a T-Rex, fall in love with a human girl, and then right. topple off the Empire State Building. I mean, yeah. they could be sad for another reason. <laughs> <laughs> and that sentiment is truly why people went to see King Kong. Not for the acting, writing, or story around the more spectacular events. And the critics were sure to make people know that. <laughs> I mean, you should have seen some of it. I mean, Faye Ray was not a great actor in that movie. I'll just go <laughs> ahead and say it. But she's still iconic for being the first Andero. And the girl that Kong carried up. And she's, oh, oh, and squealing and everything. And yeah, and, and everybody was like, yeah, her acting was pretty flimsy. But it was still pretty cool to see that ape go up there. Right? <laughs> right? So... Fast forward back to 2013, Global Creature CEO Carmen Pavlovich has already made her intentions known that with good reviews, King Kong would head to Broadway the following year. Okay. Well, good reviews is not what she received. 
no. <laughs> More or less, the reviews seemed to mimic the release of the 1933 movie. The technical elements were amazing. The story around the technical elements is what uh, threw a lot of fire. Here's a review from The Guardian. King Kong the Musical is confused both musically and narratively, packed full of ambition and innovation, but unable to pull its constituent parts into one satisfying whole, end quote. I mean, when you think about it, wouldn't that be the thing you'd focus on first? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean I, yeah, I you've got an ape. It. You've got an ape. Mm -hmm. Now what? I can see how they would want to focus on it first because it is the big aspect of the show, but oh yeah, you should probably have something to go off of. I mean, <laughs> yeah, look at look at the ape. Cool, that's really neat. What can it do? Um, watch this guy jump from his shoulders. It lifted its arm. Ooh. <laughs> now what? Watch it do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring Sarah McLaughlin out. We're dying. We're dying. Okay. Now. The musical closed in Melbourne on February 16th, 2014, after an extended run. So the run was extended, which is cool. Yeah. People kind of liked it. They wanted to go see it. But nonetheless, that's like a good eight months. Right. Did that stop Carmen Pavlovich? No. Heck no. <laughs> Before the run was over, she announced a Broadway run in 2014. Oh. But it wasn't that simple. Yeah. As I mentioned before, the Broadway theater basically had to be completely remodeled and renovated for the Broadway run. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, when Pavlovich wanted to do it, there was not a theater on Broadway that could handle the technical elements. Well, okay, no, there was one. The Foxwoods Theater. But one of its most recent tenants was the well-known Spider-Man musical. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and if you'd like to hear how that turned out please go back and listen to my episodes 9 and 10 pretty interesting stuff and I do, I, every time I bring it up people go, oh that flop I have to remind people, it did not flop a mm -hmm. flop is when it premieres and doesn't make its return back it made its return back and then some it was on Broadway for about 3 years so nope, mm -hmm. wasn't a flop it just was unsustainable <laughs> okay, off my soapbox so anyway, Foxwoods Theater, there's something of a bad luck aura around staging the next big technical masterpiece there. Just a little bit. A little yeah. Bit. Hey, you want to know what's there now? It's no longer called the Foxwoods, but uh, you know what's in that space? Hmm. Harry Potter. Seriously? <laughs> Another play people have classically gone to for the technical elements, but they say that the writing is shit. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so anyway, here's Global Creatures. They're at a standstill again. But there's also this lingering problem of the book and music. <laughs> the creative team actually got reworked several times. So the entire Australia group got shuffled out, including Kramer, who came up with the idea of Boone Recruit Theater. At one point, the creative team included Jason Robert Brown, Broadway favorite, who wrote such musicals as The Last Five Years and Parade. But he couldn't make it work. Oh, Marsha Norman, who's written for Broadway tons of times. She turned in nine versions of a script and then finally said, I can't write a musical in which the major character neither sings nor speaks. Yeah. Okay. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> amidst all this. Oh my God. You're going to love this. 
Amidst all this, Pavlovich was not sure about the future of the project and once offered to owner Jerry Ryan that he could leave the project at any time. Jerry Ryan responded with an anecdote of nine words that his mother always told him when he was growing up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. So she didn't. Oh, by the way, you want to know why Jerry Ryan wasn't all that worried? Because he was already making millions off of a company he had formed in the 1970s. You've probably heard of it. You've probably seen the logo. And you may have one of his projects sitting in your driveway. Any guesses, David? Man, I I don't know why Tesla's (laughs) popping in my head, but it's not Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) No. Jerry Ryan created Jayco Camper Trailers. Oh, okay. (laughs) Jayco at one point was making over a billion dollars a year. So Jerry Ryan wasn't too concerned about his projects failing. I mean, you look this guy up. He has wineries. He sponsors uh, cycling teams and horse racing teams Mm -hmm. uh, in in the millions of dollars, like ridiculous amounts of money. So when somebody comes to him and goes, we've got this show for uh, about dinosaurs. We need 150,000. He goes, yeah, no problem. Here you go. And then it just goes on to just do boffo success. He's like, Mm -hmm. I don't really want to run the dinosaur thing anymore. I wouldn't mind making the money off it, though. You run this thing. Oh, King Kong, you want to do that? Yeah, sure. Let's go. Jeez. In fact, at the same time that Kong was announced for its Broadway run, Ryan had announced that Global Creatures would be mounting four major theater productions on different continents at the tune of over 75 million, of which Kong would be using 36.5 million. Wow. Uh, and, And you keep it in perspective, like, Today, a standard musical without huge technical elements like that, you're talking like 10 to 15 million. That's what you need to break even. Um, mm-hmm. Your investors are there. If if you get to that point, your investors are making money after that. That's right, it. Right. Okay. So 36.5, that's a bit of a stretch, but um, it's possible. Yeah. However, in 2017, the Broadway Theater, like I said before, it's called the Broadway Theater, made itself mm-hmm. open to the idea of housing King Kong, so they had a place to go. All right, one problem solved. Plus, the scale of the show, just how big it was, and like the idea that you sell it as like this huge budget thing where people are like, ooh, mm-hmm. it's big budget, then I'm going to see something amazing. The scale of the show attracted some New York producers who loved the idea of coming to New York where the audience could see something that they couldn't see anywhere else in the world. But American audiences were no strangers to racial sensitivities and some of the problems that King Kong brings up. I think I saw some quote somewhere, David, and and it's well-founded as far as I'm concerned, Mm -hmm. that King Kong, since its inception, has perpetually been about the white fear of black male sexuality particularly towards white women. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I mean, God, if you see some of the old posters, yeah, Kong is presented as this brown, like milk chocolate brown creature Mm -hmm. with wide eyes, big fangs, and big red lips, just like a minstrel show character. I mean, okay. Yeah, but anyway. So for this production on Broadway, 
Global Creatures cast African-American actor Christiani Pitts as Andero, the first Black actor ever to take the role of Andero. And around this new relationship between Anne and Kong in the 1930s, a new script could be reimagined. So I'm like, okay, interesting angle, solves some issues, introduces mm -hmm. others, but okay, we're just going to have fun. And by the way, pound for pound, outside the puppet, Christiane Pitts was my next favorite part of this show. I loved her, and I wish her a long and happy career. Broadway, if anybody's listening, go find her and put her in your next project. She's amazing. Anyway. Absolutely. A new libretto was also done up by up-and-coming musical artist Eddie Perfect. If you are familiar with that name, Eddie Perfect went on to write the music and lyrics for the Beetlejuice musical, which was premiering the following year. Okay. The cast and crew were completely redone. The choreography was completely redone to include some of the most amazing bodies I have ever seen on Broadway. I'll never forget it. And yeah, they might have been enhanced by makeup, but whatever. It was a fun show. Right. In any case, the show opened on October 5th, 2018. It grossed over a million dollars in its first okay. week. One week. That's great. Right? <laughs> I know. You're like... 35 weeks? Okay, what's yeah. that? Like, uh, okay, we're looking at five, six months and we got our money back? Awesome. Yeah. Hey, you want to know how it was received? I'm assuming poorly. Here's another review from The Guardian. <laughs> it's bountifully clear that from the first forgettable lyrics to the last gratuitous lines that no hominid involved in this glitzy shambles has any idea what to do with Kong. This is less a musical than an amusement park ride perpetually needing repairs, a feat of production design with occasional dance breaks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about repairs, they're big animatronic things. To keep all of the joints lubricated, they had oil in the machines all the time. They basically had a technician who was like the oil pressure technician, and he'd right. be sitting there watching a screen that monitors the oil pressure in all of the machines, and if it ever got too hot, they'd have to stop the show until it cooled down again. This happened in the production I went to, in which oh. the uh, the intermission was extended from 15 minutes to 45 minutes. So I had a couple drinks at the bar. <laughs> but it happened all the time. And they only had two of these puppets. The other one was a gi that giant snake I talked about. Mm -hmm. like, and, and that was the thing it fought. It was a giant right. snake. But it couldn't move at the speed of a regular eight because the puppeteers right. couldn't make it move that fast. So when it finally like brought its hands around the head of the cobra and like turned it and then crushed it and brought the head down, you're like, oh, I guess it won. <laughs> yeah. So it would break down constantly, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... What, is there a planned intermission or does it just like whenever it breaks down it's like all right 15 minute break type thing or uh, they they did they would like shut the curtain and a voice would come over and say ladies and gentlemen uh we apologize we're having some technical difficulties we hope the show can get back up as soon as we possibly can and this this is not an unusual thing on broadway when you have big technical stuff like that you know when i did the episode on spider-man i saw that a few times one of them was that poor girl who was suspended over the audience for like an hour and a half <laughs> She's just sitting there and the lights come on so everybody can look up there and see her dangling and she's she's in her harness just but yeah that that does happen that does happen yeah 
man, I just had a thought. Just like this, like this guy that rarely goes to theaters, like, man, she's really up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and at least, at least with Kong, they closed the curtain. In fact, right. yeah, that, that happened right before the big snake fight when I went to see it. They had to close oh. the curtain. We sat there for 15, 20 minutes. We had some discussion and yeah. But anyway, these reviews, most of the reviews that I read pretty much echoed the same thing. Like it was a musical that didn't know what tone it was setting with its music or its storytelling, but God, the ape was cool. If you really want some uh, entertaining reading, I would suggest finding the printed conversation that included my favorite review writer, New York times, Ben Brantley. Oh my God. It's equal parts. It's equal parts, vicious and delicious, but delicious because it's so vicious. Um, Right. Now, I got to see King Kong on July 24th, 2019. King Kong closed on Broadway on August 18th, 2019, after 324 performances. The production received Tony nominations for Best Scenic Design, Best Sound Design, and Best Lighting Design. And Sonny Tilders was also awarded a special Tony Award for bringing Kong to life on Broadway with a team of puppeteers. As, as they should be. Yeah. But... Before we're done with this story, you want to know what one of the four musicals was that was in development at the same time as Kong turned out to be that Global Creatures was working on? Moulin Rouge. (laughs) Which is currently still on Broadway. Right. It opened on Broadway in 2019 and after a hiatus due to COVID, reopened on Broadway in 2021. In September 2021, Moulin Rouge won 10 of the 14 Tony Awards it was nominated for, including Best Musical, Best Director, and Best Choreography. No puppets received any awards. Mm. And David, that's the story of King Kong on Broadway. I mean, wow. (laughs) So when we go back and look at it, you're like, so, okay, we're going to do this King Kong musical, right? Mm -hmm. All right. What do we do? Well, you design a puppet first. Okay, makes sense. All right, now what? Oh, a story? (laughs) What's music? Oh, nonsense. (laughs) Something to keep us entertained? We'll just, look, I have a mixtape CD in the car right now. We'll just go off of that. I mean, I... I appreciate the ambition of this. I really do. And I loved seeing that show. And I, I had the same sentiment. I went... This song in this part didn't match the theme in this part. And this one didn't match this part. If you listen to a well-crafted musical, it's thematic throughout. You listen to Dear Evan Hansen. They know what it sounds like through the entire thing. And at different points, it you know, different characters have different sounds, but it's done in the same style. Hamilton even has the highs and lows and, and how different people do things. But you can always tell when something's just, it's off. Right. It, it doesn't match here for some reason. And that's the thing about when you're trying to make something available for commercial Broadway. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe don't do that. It, it might have almost been better to develop it as an arena show. Right. But still, you've got to have something to do with it. Yeah. Like, Colin himself, absolute masterpiece. Like, the oh, puppet. It was gorgeous. And I feel like you could almost sell like arena show just like that. Be like, Oh, we captured the great ape type thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you add, I can, I can see why like adding music and a whole bunch of stuff and to just work around the giant thing, you know? Right. I can see how it could be problematic. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was kind of interesting. The first song of the musical, I was kind of impressed with. I went, oh, this is going to be all right. The dancing really caught me off guard. And I, I think I read something right before I went to see it where the choreographer was inspired by some sort of new dancing in France or something like that in theaters in France and 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 wanted that look. So the dancers were all like incredibly cut. Like the men were in underwear model shape and mm-hmm. and just outstanding physique and and nailed their 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 moves and everything and it was gorgeous. I it's very rare. I, I'm saying this from my perspective it's very rare to see a man lift another man on stage they right. did it tons of times in this and it was absolutely gorgeous it, that's the part that impressed me outside of the puppet and christiani pitts but the opening number was all about these people in the great depression who had nothing really to look forward to right. but they just knew they had to keep going on because there's going to be something happening someday and that's the whole theme of it like that's why ann darrow goes to skull island and then Falls in love with an ape. I mean, why not? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was the whole sequence where like Kong was like climbing up grid work of a, a of a new uh, skyscraper, and that's how it got to the top of the of the of the Empire State. And that was kind of neat, but it was very short. Right. I mean, the number of times that they just made neat effects happen. I still had to go. They just rotated it 45 degrees. (laughs) I mean, you have to think, because this is like 2018, 2019, you know, Godzilla versus Kong or or like some King Kong movie or something. I'm sure that helps with scales. But at some point you got to sit there and think is like, will this work on stage? And yeah, you can get it done, but is it good? Well, that's the first thing that I think of, like when I'm going to be directing a project. I remember it was years ago. It might have been my second year directing high school theater at Sheridan where you went. One of the scripts I was actually looking at was Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yeah. And then I looked at it and it had 45 characters. And I went, well, we might be able to get that many people. That's a heck of a lot of coordination as far as costuming and stuff. Then I started to read it and you're like, okay. How am I going to build the Cheshire Cats like place? Mm-hmm. How am I going to build a Caterpillar's tree? How am I going to build the Queen of Hearts palette? Good God. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I know it can be done. That's not my forte. Technical theater is not my forte. I probably couldn't do it. I might be able to hire it out, but I'm on a very small budget. Mm-hmm. This is just not something I can do. Now, that wasn't the problem for the Global Creatures Group. They had the right. money. They had the people. Mm-hmm. They just didn't seem to have the idea of how to make a musical. Right. And that's mm-hmm. the thing. If you go, we want we want to go into musicals. That's what you got to have. You got to know how to make a musical. But right. on the other hand, one thing I really appreciated in learning about this was the Broadway producers who got involved. A lot of people were going, so you're going to do King Kong. Well, look what happened to Spider-Man. What happened there? They all kind of went, you know what? Spider-Man was, it taught us a lot of good lessons. And we learned a lot of mistakes from that that we hope not to repeat. And so this will not be a repeat of Spider-Man. In fact, I think Kong made back its money. 
right. completely. I don't know how long it was going to stay, obviously, because after a while, people start hearing things like, yeah, the monkey breaks down all the time and you have to sit in the audience and wait. And yeah. So I think after a while, they just went, yeah, this is not sustainable. So they didn't try to suckle off that teat anymore. You know what I mean? Right. I did read about an attempt to bring it to Japan in 2021. Interesting. But it was going to play at a resort. Oh. <laughs> a Hard Rock Cafe resort. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it ever went up or not, but I, I think I think the producers, uh, Global Creatures, they kind of went, you know what? This might be for a market that appreciates more of a spectacle-laced show, but I don't know. It sounds like COVID, COVID might have killed Kong the musical. <laughs> I mean, if anyone can do it, Japan can, because there's some like, amazing technologies that come from there. So if anyone oh, yeah. can do it, I'm sure they could. Oh, yeah. Do Go and, and, and appreciate it. You mm -hmm. might have an audience that actually appreciates that. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I just have my doubts that Kong will ever resurface. But hey, cool puppet. Yeah. Yeah. Cool puppet. <laughs> Okay, think what you want, but for me, this was the last stop on my first visit to Broadway. One of my favorite stories told live in front of me, perhaps not told in the best way, but I still cried when Kong fell from the top of the Empire State Building, and I've got a ton of merch to remember it with. After all, it was beauty that killed the beast. I want to thank David Britton for returning and contributing to this episode, and coming up, I know I teased some more stuff about the Federal Theater Project, and it's definitely on deck. But for now, I'm going to sign off. This has been Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, bringing you another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. A new episode will be in your ears in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. I've been, I've been.